0: Welcome back to the Apostles mailbox, where today we're going to be talking about monotheism. All right, I wanted to talk about monotheism for a few reasons. Uh, one of them is that uh, this is this is an a topic that we have modern understanding of. Uh, that I think is sometimes detrimental to our understanding of Scripture. I was watching a a YouTube video by a a fairly popular um, YouTube theologian, if that's a thing, and he was explaining monotheism at the beginning of his video in a way that I just, as I heard, listened to him talk, I was just like, dude doesn't know what he is talking about. He has just this very modern view of of monotheism. But he, you know, he proclaimed it just so confidently and so quickly and as if it were just like unquestionably true uh, and, and and sort of a duh idea for every Christian to believe uh, that i that I just I found myself shaking my head thinking like, boy, he, he is he does not understand that which he so confidently affirms uh, so i wanted to in in some ways to to share what you, with you something that i've learned over the past number of years that has really been helpful to me in these regards um, and that's really the, the 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 bigger reason which is that i thought this would be a just it was a good time uh, to remind me that that this, these are there are some ideas that that might be very helpful to you in your understanding of scripture so it was maybe uh, three or four years ago that I uh, read a book by Dr. Michael Heiser called The Unseen Realm. and it was uh, it was quite a transformative for me in my understanding of certain Old Testament scriptures. Uh, and I wanted to share some of those thoughts with you. And so we're going to talk about monotheism, but particularly what I wanted to help you understand is what ancient monotheism would have meant in the minds of of, of people who, Uh, the people who wrote and who received the writings of the original Old Testament, okay? Because, of course, as we understand, uh, God has preserved those scriptures for us so that we can know him, uh, but they weren't written from a modern Western point of view. They weren't written to us directly. And so we have to do this work of interpretation, of understanding what they meant as they were written, as they were communicated. Okay, and so part of that is what we're going to be up to today. So, um, monotheism, I wanted to begin with with this, this idea of a related concept, okay? So, mono means one or only, and theos is the Greek word for God, so monotheism is the worship of one God. Polytheism, with poly meaning many, means uh, the worship of many gods. And so Christianity is a monotheistic religion. We worship one god. Judaism is a monotheistic religion. They worship one god. Uh, uh, Islam is a monotheistic religion. They worship one god. Uh, The ancient Romans, they were polytheistic. They had many gods. They had many different temples that they would worship in. Uh, the, the Greeks were polytheistic; they worshipped many gods. The Egyptians they were polytheistic; they worshipped many gods. And so we think uh, that the distinction between monotheism and polytheism, if we're if we're raised in sort of a modern Western. Uh, culture, in our heads, we think, well, what monotheism means is that God is the only spiritual being of power in existence, and everything else is just a sham. It's just fake. It's not real. It's just all in your imagination. Uh, but this has problems when we read the scriptures because it that mentality is not what the original authors and, and recipients of scripture would have thought in their head when they thought monotheism. And as you have a a biblical understanding of monotheism, uh, you will be able to understand certain parts of scripture more accurately, more truthfully. Okay, so uh, take uh, monogamy as a parallel. So monogamy is this idea that you should have mono, one, gamos, which which is marriage, basically, uh, one, marriage. Uh, Polygamy is that you would have many marriages that a person could marry many spouses. And so monogamy doesn't say that there are no other people like it would be impossible to have other marriages. It just says it's only right and it's only allowed to marry one person. And as our wedding vows used to say, uh, once upon a time in English, that we uh, we would bind ourselves to one spouse, that we would marry one spouse, and then we would forsake all others as long as we both shall live. Right, and so monogamy said you take one spouse and you're faithful to them. And then even in monogamy, though, you'll notice that what is the, the other term? As long as you both shall live. Because if one person died, if one of the spouses died, then it wouldn't be a polygamous, if you will, uh, to marry a different spouse. You could pick a different spouse if your original spouse died, and you would not be guilty of violating monogamy. Okay? So with Monotheism, the the idea that we're going to get at today, is not that God is the only spiritual being of power, but that God is unique in some way and that he is special in some way to Israel. And we're going to talk about what that means, of course, in greater detail. But I want to get out of your head this idea that when we say monotheism, we mean that God is the only divine being and that there are no other Uh, what we might call divine beings in existence. I think it would be not only practically hazardous to our spiritual health, but it's actually an unbiblical way of thinking. Okay? So, uh, allow me to explain. You might not be with me quite yet. (laughs) In the Old Testament, there are a number of words used to refer to God. Okay? One of those words is the personal name of God that God gave to Israel, Yahweh, which in the old King James was translated Jehovah because of probably some misunderstanding of the way the Hebrew ought to be translated. Um, but the, the the personal name of God, Yahweh, shows up uh, somewhere between three and four hundred times, I think, in the Old Testament. Okay, in your English translation, if you have an English translation uh, in front of you, usually when that word is translated, it will be translated uh, with all capital letters as the word Lord. So it will be a big capital L and then a little capital o a little capital r and a little capital d lord that indicates that in the hebrew was the word was the name yahweh and the reason it's translated lord is because the jews did not want to pronounce the divine name the personal name of god and so they would when they were reading it out loud and they came to the to the name yahweh they would say Adonai instead, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. Okay, so when they read it, they would say Adonai, even though it was the divine name. And so when we translate into English, they translate it with Lord instead of the divine name. I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's the way it is. It's a fascinating bit of trivia, actually, that in early Greek translations in the first century, of the Old Testament, when they translated things in into Greek from the Hebrew, they would translate the divine name, or they wouldn't actually translate it. So it would be Greek, 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 Greek. And then when they came to the name Yahweh, it would have the Hebrew what's called the Tetragrammaton, the four letters of the Hebrew word Yahweh, it would have them in Hebrew written there in the midst of the Greek. So you'd have Greek, 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 Yahweh, Greek, 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 Yahweh. And then it was only later Christian copies of the Septuagint that started replacing those Hebrew words Yahweh with the Greek word kurios, which is the Greek word for Lord which, of course, creates all kinds of confusion when we try to sort out Lord in the New Testament versus Lord in the Old Testament, and, and when the actual term Lord was being used and when the divine name was there, it's kind of a mess. It's one of the problems with translating between languages. Uh, but, sort of rabbit-trailed for a minute, but the point is that the name Yahweh is one way in which God the Father is referred to in the Old Testament, Okay. So, uh, also in the Old Testament, we have vastly more common is the word Elohim. Elohim shows up in the Old Testament somewhere around, I think, 2,600 times, okay? But the thing about the term Elohim is that Elohim is is sort of generic uh, as a term for God. That The term Elohim often refers to the God that Israel worshipped, but at least... Less, slightly less than hundred, but around I think ninety times in the in the Old Testament, uh, the word Elohim is translated as what we would translate a lowercase G God. So it refers not to the Israelite God, but to some other God, right? The God of a of a nation. So, uh, for instance, um, the the Moab the Moabites they worshipped uh, um and in Judges 11.24, uh, there's this reference reference talking to Moab about Chemosh, your God, your Elohim. Okay, so the word Elohim doesn't refer unilaterally to Yahweh. It's more of a generic term, right? Uh, the, the, the other difficulty is that the word Elohim is sometimes translated in ways that, that would cause us to scratch our heads. Uh, so for instance, um, in Psalm 8, verse 5. Uh, let's just pull that up here real quick. Uh, Psalm 8, 5, we, we read this. You, uh, you is referred as Yahweh, who's earlier in, in Psalm chapter 8. But he says, Yet you, Yahweh, have made him, the Son of Man, a little lower than the heavenly beings. Okay? And if you look in the... Sorry, not that you really read Hebrew, Uh, but if you look here, what the actual Hebrew says, you have made him a little lower than the Elohim. So it's saying, God, you made this Son of Man lower than the Elohim. But the Elohim is not referring to God himself. It's referring to something else. And in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, that word Elohim is translated angels. So, the ancient Greek scholars who translated this passage, when they read Elohim, they didn't think, well, that refers to God, as we would think of God, but that's referring to angels, okay? That was their interpretive decision, what they thought the word meant. And what this indicates to us is that in the Jewish mind, Elohim did not mean only Yahweh. Elohim meant something else. There's another really fascinating passage in in 1 Samuel 28, which we're not going to read, but where Samuel, or where where King Saul, goes to a a medium, uh, and he he asks her to, like, call up the spirit of the dead prophet Samuel. And when this witch does this, uh, she says, I see a God, an Elohim, coming out of the ground. Now, she's referring to the spirit of the deceased Samuel as an Elohim and Saul recognizes that it's Samuel. So she's not saying, like, I see the God of the universe who created all of this coming out of the ground, but she is referring to him as an Elohim. Okay, and so that's interesting information for us to understand that the word Elohim doesn't only mean God the Father in the Old Testament when it's used. It means other things. Okay, and we're going to see one of those right now uh, in a very significant place in Deuteronomy 32. Okay, so in Deuteronomy 32, this is a song that is uh, sung by Moses, and here's what it says. It says, when the Most High, uh, and this is the ter- the, the Hebrew term Yon, which is not God, and it's not Yahweh, it refers to the Most High, which is a Interesting statement to make, which we'll get to in a minute. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. All right? So, and then he says in verse 9, but the Lord's portion, but the portion belonging to Yahweh, is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. What Moses is describing, as best as we can understand it, is what happened at the Tower of Babel. Okay, so in Genesis, I believe it's chapter 11, uh, all of the nations, all of the people in the world speak the same language and they get together and they say, we're going to build a tower that reaches to heaven. And then God says, we got to put a stop to this. And so he goes down and he scatters the nations into all of these different languages and he drives them apart and they form all these different Nations, and what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 32 is that when the Most High, when the highest God, if you will, gave the nations, when when God split up the nations, He fixed their borders according to the number of the sons of God. Now, if you look in the in the in the Masoretic text, which is an old, uh, sorry, a newer Hebrew text. It says, he divided them up according to the number of sons of Israel. But this, this word is problematic because Israel didn't exist at the time of Babel, right? And even at the time of Moses, when Moses is talking about this, right? Israel um, has just become, a, sort of just become a nation. But he knows that Israel didn't exist as a nation uh, prior to his, uh, to the coming out of Egypt, Right, And so, uh, to say that God divided up the nations according to the number of the sons of Israel, who didn't yet exist, can't be right. And so, if we look at the Septuagint, what we find is an interesting translation. We say that God divided up the nations according to the number of the angels of God. Now, remember, in in... Psalm, 80, or Psalm 8, verse 5, we saw that the Septuagint had translated the term Elohim as angels. And so you would think whatever Hebrew manuscript those scholars had when they translated this, it must have said Elohim. Now, prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we didn't know if that was true or not. But then what happened is that we, when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, in the 1900s, it was it was around the time of World War II uh, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. What they found was older fragments of the Old Testament scriptures written in Hebrew. And what they discovered in the old in these fragments of the Hebrew scriptures, which are hundreds of years older than the Masoretic text, the normal normal, if you will, Hebrew scriptures that we had. Um, These far older manuscripts, they said that God divided up the nations according to the number of the sons of Elohim, to the number of these divine beings. And the mentality is this, okay, that God splits up the nations and he lets one Elohim or one son of the Elohim, one spiritual being of great power, he puts one of those over each nation, And this fits very consistently with the way the Old Testament talks about the gods of each of the nations, right? And so all of these nations had a different God residing over them. And then what does Moses say? He says, but God, Yahweh, he picked one people for himself, and that was Israel. And remember, where where I started here in verse 8 was, he said, the Most High the, The title, the Most High, refers to the God who is higher than all of these other Elohim. So it's as if Moses says, now, there's one God who created all of this, right? Because Elohim, the Elohim in Genesis 1, created the heavens and the earth. There's one God who made all of this. And then he also, he had some other spiritual beings who are also called Elohim, but not in the same capacity they're not the creator god they're not the god over all things that the most high god he divvied up the world according to the number of these Elohim and he put them in charge of these uh, according to the number of Elohim there were right so he said each of you Elohim you just each of you gets a a, a people group if you will to call your own but then we're told Yahweh, God himself, the the most high God, he said, but I'm going to keep one group of people that are for me, right? And so his special people, Israel, they saw themselves as uniquely different from all of the other nations because all of the other nations, they were underneath these subordinate Elohim, these sort of children of God, of the Most High, created beings from him, lesser beings from him, that were nonetheless supernatural beings of great power. But Israel, their God, the one they worshipped, He was the one who was over all. He was the creator of all. And so you have these Old Testament passages about God saying, like, who is like me? He's not saying there's no other spiritual being as great power, but he's saying there's only one Most High. There's only one Yahweh. There's only one creator. The universe is not made up of a bunch of different gods who are all on the same playing field. There's one God who created all, and what he created was a heavenly realm, a spiritual realm, inhabited by spiritual beings, which are uh, generically sort of referred to as Elohim, including uh, Samuel. After he loses his body, he's a disembodied spirit. He's an Elohim. He inhabits the, the, the spiritual realm, the unseen realm. You have these angels. There. They're beings that have spirits. They don't have physical bodies, but they inhabit the unseen realm called Elohim. And so the idea here is that, as Moses describes it, that God split up the nations and he put the physical earthly nations, each under the rule of an Elohim. And then he picked one people to be especially his. And those Israelites, he said, make sure you are not allowed to worship any of the other nations' gods. You are not to worship any of the gods of the other nations' Sometimes they de- did this, right? So then, if you understand this, then when you see in the Old Testament these ideas of God sort of putting to shame the other nations and their gods, and you have these descriptions of like Israel's enemies saying like, "Oh, their god must be a god of the of the mountains or the plains," and so we got to fight them on different territory, and then our god will be stronger. Uh, the the biblical witness is that God is over everything, and <laughs> there's not just one place. Right where he's stronger, he doesn't have a a special territory ha- where he has strength, and somewhere else the other gods are stronger. Uh, he is he is sovereign over all, and he is and he takes Israel, and then he is able. He has authority when Israel comes out of Egypt. He has authority not only to triumph over all of Egypt's gods, which is what the plagues signify, uh, but that he has the right to kick out nations. From Canaan and to establish his people there, and to say, "Well, your gods had your peoples in this place, but get out of there, because I'm cho- I'm taking this place for my people, for the Israelites." Okay, so you have this idea, and you're like, "Well, is that just just in a song? A song in Deuteronomy 32 is that it? That's kind of I didn't know about that." But then um, where that brings us to is a very uh, fascinating uh, passage, and it's in Psalm 82. Uh, and, the, and there's and I say it's fascinating because there is a link here uh, to Jesus Christ. Okay? So I'm going to try to pull this up here. Um, it's in uh, John 10, I believe. Okay, so in John 10, we have this uh, fascinating passage where Jesus has been calling himself the Son of God, and he's been referring to God as his Father, and the Jews say that this is blasphemous, okay? He says uh, in in John 10, verse 33, right? Jesus, he's asked him, why are you going to stone me right? I'm doing all these wonderful, good, miraculous works. Which of them has is, is made me guilty? And the Jews answer Jesus. They say, it's not for good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answers them. So here's how Jesus says, they said, you have just called yourself God, and that's blasphemous, and we're going to kill you. And what Jesus does is he quotes Psalm 82, and he says this, Is it not written in your law, quote, I said you are gods. So we're going to discuss what that means here in a minute. He says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came. In other words, whoever this psalm is addressed at, that says, I said you are gods. If the psalmist said you are gods, or if if God's speaking in that psalm, and God said that you are gods, and Scripture, of course, it cannot be broken. You can't throw out Scripture. You can't reject it. It can't be wrong. Uh, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. So uh, there's, a, there's a lot going on here, but Jesus is answering these Jewish leaders. They say, you're blaspheming because you're calling God your Father, and you're calling yourself the Son of God, and that is blasphemous. You are not to say that. And Jesus says, now hold on. There is a passage in your, own other, in your scriptures, and you know we can't get rid of the scriptures that we don't like. There's a passage in your scriptures that refers to a group of people, and it calls them gods, and, and we're going to see, actually, it talks about sons of God, right? It calls these this group of people gods. And so he says, how would you say that it's blasphemy for me to say that I am the son of God? Right. And so the, the Jews have heard something Jesus has said, and they've taken it to be uh, blasphemous. But Jesus says, your own Bible refers to this group of beings as gods, and it refers to them as sons of God. And so, if it's okay for them to be sons of God, why is it not okay for me to be called a son of God? Okay, so this is still perhaps a little bit fuzzy in your head, so we're going to read Psalm 82 then, okay? So, in Psalm 82, we read this. God, that is the Elohim, has taken his place in the divine council, okay? And what this term is literally it is the congregation of El who is the god and then he clarifies in the midst of the gods the Elohim he holds judgment so there is an Elohim the most high god right who sits down in this gathering in this assembly of of the sons of El or the 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 gods, the the assembly of God, and in the midst of other Elohim, God Almighty is going to hold judgment. All right, so you picture in your head, you have the creator God, the Elohim, the one who created everything, and he is sitting in this gathering filled with other divine beings who are called Elohim. The Bible calls them gods, okay? Okay. And then here's what God says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding, they walk about in darkness, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. So what God is saying to these Elohim is he's saying, I put you in charge of these nations and these nations are an unjust train wreck of wickedness and tyranny. How long are you going to let that go on? Okay? And so in verse 6, here's what Jesus quoted, right? In verse 6, we read this. I said, you are gods. I said, you are Elohim, sons of the Most High. Elion.' we saw this, right? Elion is the one who divided up the nations. He said, you're all sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, because you have done this, like men, you shall die. So he says, he's not talking to men, he's talking to people who aren't men. And he says, because you have done such a terrible job, you're going to die like these mortal humans and you're gonna fall like any prince. And then you have this statement here, this, Uh, Arise, O God, right? This is an imperative. This is a command. Stand up, Elohim, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Okay, so there's a lot going on here, but here's the essence of it. Jesus is saying that he's a son of God and the Jews want to kill him for claiming to be a son of God. And Jesus just says, look, you have a scripture that calls a group of people gods, Elohim, and that same verse says that they are sons of the Most High. So Jesus says, How can it be wrong for me to take a title that the Bible uses? Right. In the Jewish mind, to claim this was to make was for somebody to make themselves equal to God. And Jesus is correcting their understanding. He's saying the Bible has a group of people that are addressed that are called sons of the Most High. They're not equal to God, and they're called Elohim. They're given the title gods, but they're clearly not the God that Israel worships. And he said, so if there are in existence gods, sons of the Most High, and your Bible talks about them, and in fact, those words, I said your gods, are probably words from God himself holding judgment. So what he's saying is, if Yahweh looks at this group of beings and he says, you are sons of the Most High and you are gods and yet you are going to die like men, uh, then he says, it is not wrong of me to take the title son of God because I am indeed the son of God. And then you have this statement here in verse 8 which jesus doesn't quote but i want to point it out to you because this this one fascinates me psalm 82 8 says arise o god judge the earth for you shall inherit all the nations so remember our 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 hebrew mindset of the gods is that these elohim they were all put over different nations each of these elohim got a different nation uh, and they were they were to reign over them, they were to judge them, and they did a, a terrible job. And so the Most High God, who separated out all the peoples to all these nations, he judges them, he condemns them, he says, You're going to die, you're going to perish like men. And then that same, either the psalmist or God, it's not totally clear, says, Rise up, Elohim, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations." Right? And what do we know from the New Testament about Jesus? He is consistently portrayed as the one who is exalted, especially if you look at, like, Philippians 2, and every knee bows to him, right? All of the nations are his inheritance, and they're described as his inheritance. And so Jesus is, if you will, the Elohim of Psalm 82 8, the one to whom God the Father says, uh, Arise, Elohim, judge the earth, right? What does Jesus say? All judgment has been given to me, for you shall inherit the nations. And Jesus uh, is going to inherit all of the nations, right? So, <laughs> like, all of your talk about about the end judgment that is coming fits into Psalm 82, that Jesus has been given the name above every other name. He's been given all judgment, and he's going to inherit all of the nations. That's Psalm eighty two eight. And when the Pharisees accuse Jesus of blasphemy, all he does is he refers him back to this psalm, and he says, look, it's in your Bible that Yahweh says to a bunch of people, I said, you are gods, you are sons of the Most High. So he says, how do you accuse me of blasphemy for claiming to be a son of God when you, by your very own scriptures, know that this is faithful to the monotheistic religion that you proclaim, right? So perhaps in that day, the Jews had said, like, the only being in existence worthy of the title theos, uh, which translates Elohim, is uh, God, Uh, But Jesus is saying, look, in Psalm 82, uh, the psalmist has, on the very words of God, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has uh, these words, Yahweh says, you are sons of the Most High, you are Elohim. And he says this, and this might be a little bit challenging to us, this is is an entire group of people that, um, that God is referring to. And so God in in Psalm 82 is talking to a group of beings, not just Jesus, but a group of beings. He's calling them Elohim. He's calling them sons of God or sons of the Most High. And he's condemning basically all of them. And yet then he turns and he says to another being, Arise, judge the earth, you shall inherit all the nations. So we might talk about some of the implications of this. Uh, in the future. But I want you to see this, because there have been... uh, This passage is basically impossible uh, to describe, uh, to understand, if you think in your head that monotheism means God is the only spiritual being of power, right? Um, If you think that in your head, you can't... there's no good way to translate Psalm 82, or at least that I'm aware of. But once you understand this, then certain things about Jesus start to make, I think, more sense. Where um, God calls Jesus my chosen one. And you say, well, why would God call Jesus his chosen one? Um, In in what sense does does God choose Jesus? Uh, And except if you look at Psalm 82 and God says to a group of Elohim, he says, Uh, You are all gods, you are all sons of the Most High, and you shall die. And then he turns in Psalm 82, uh, verse 8, and picks one of these, Elohim, perhaps, and says, Arise, O Elohim, and judge the earth. So, uh, there's some things going on here, but the, the framework is this. In the Jewish mindset, right, the idea of monotheism was not this exclusion of spiritual beings of power. In fact, the term Elohim is used to describe angels, uh, dead, disembodied human spirits, if you will. And so Elohim clearly in the Old Testament is bigger than just referring to God. How Michael Heiser describes it is he says, Elohim is more of a description of the sphere of existence. It's a spiritual being who inhabits the heavenly realm then it is a term referring to a set of characteristics like omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence, right? And so when the Bible refers to God as the Elohim, it's not saying that he is omnipotent and omniscient and all of these other things. It's saying that God is the penultimate, he is the highest He is the most high being in the spiritual realm. He is the one who is without peer, without match, without equal in the heavenly realm. But the term Elohim on its own doesn't say that. And so you have other terms applied to God like Yon, the most high. And uh, he's called El, he's called Yahweh. And so it's these other terms that tell us who God is in his superiority, and his title as Elohim. That's a broader category, uh, if you will. Okay, so there's a lot there. I probably haven't really done justice to it uh, terribly well, Um, but I've got you started. You can, uh, if you want more, you can go and and listen to some of Michael Heiser's uh, uh, recorded messages on YouTube. You can buy one of his books. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, he has passed away now. He is, he is, no longer in the land of the living, and so he won't be writing any more books, uh, nor can you schedule him to come and speak at your church. Uh, But uh, there is much that he published out there that is very, very helpful, and uh, hopefully other scholars will pick it up and sort of expand upon that work a little bit. But for now, you understand now that the idea of monotheism is a bit broader than perhaps you had in the past, and this should be helpful. As you're reading Old Testament passages, and you come to this term about gods, um, you're probably not reading in the Hebrew, so you're not going to run into the term Elohim, but as you you come to the ideas about gods and about angels and about spiritual beings, you won't be thrown for a total loop, uh, because in your head now, you no longer have to think like, oh, those are just imaginary made-up beings. And of course, if you take a half step back, you realize like, oh, well... Um, we've always believed, right? We've always known that that the devil, that the serpent, that the deceiver, that the enemy of God's people is a spiritual being and he does have spiritual power of some sort. And we use the term uh, demon to describe him. Uh, but what is a demon? Well, it's a spiritual being inhabiting the spiritual realm with power. Uh, and so he, in, in some ways, like, We've reserved the term God to refer to the Most High God, to refer to Yahweh, um, and we, have, we haven't understood that, biblically speaking, this term Elohim uh, refers to a larger grouping of beings. Okay, so it's not to say that God is like, uh, you know, like an equal opposite of Satan. That's not the case. Uh, the, the, the devil is the enemy. He's a created being. Right, angels and demons are created beings, but nonetheless, all of them together are lumped in uh, to this to this grouping of the term Elohim. Okay, so uh, the other nations they worshipped these beings, the Elohim uh, of their nations. That would have been uh, they would have had power. They they could have done some things. Uh, and Revelation tells us that when the Antichrist and the, and the the false prophet are are out, like they're going. People will be deceived by works of spiritual power. Like, there is spiritual power in the heavenly realm that is not from God. And it's real, and it's legit, and it is not to be messed with. Uh, And there is spiritual peril involved uh, in those things. And so, if you have this idea that says God is the only spiritual power out there and everything else is fairy tales, then you become vulnerable uh, to perhaps dabbling in things that you have no business touching, right? Things like Ouija boards and charms and crystals and other ways of trying to harness like spiritual power, uh, Wiccan stuff like there is real spiritual power behind some of those things. And it is not power that you are allowed to interface with. And there are not things that will bring you life, but death. God says you worship no one but him. And so that's your warning, right? It's not just fun make-believe. It's the reason uh, that we as as my family, that in our household we don't participate in trick-or-treating at at Halloween is because um, despite the fact that in many people's minds, like it's just make-believe and it's harmless or whatever, like there is a spiritual realm that has... Uh, beings of spiritual power and they are God's enemy and they are the enemy of God's children and they hate you and Satan prowls around like a roaring lion uh, searching for someone to devour and the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy and you just don't mess with it. Okay, so uh <laughs> like A ton of stuff um, that I've laid out there for you. Hopefully, you've been challenged in your thinking. Hopefully, you've been encouraged. Hopefully, you've been introduced to a few new ideas. And uh, if you have questions, uh, drop them in the comments below. Or if you have my contact information, send me an email. And uh, you can ask follow-up questions. Maybe we'll talk about them in a future episode. Uh, uh, But until then, uh, God bless you. And we'll see you again around here soon.